For full transcripts, translations, content notes, and resources from this episode, follow along with us on our show notes at queensmemory.org. This is the Queen's Memory Podcast, a selection of personal histories from the borough of Queens in New York City. This podcast comes to you from the Queen's Memory Project, based in Jamaica, Queens, at the Queen's Central Library. I'm Natalie Milbrook, Director of Queen's Memory, where we record and preserve contemporary history across the borough. We grow our archives by collecting oral histories, photos, and mementos shared with us by community members. Local volunteers who train with Queen's Memory staff facilitate and record our oral history interviews. We feature oral histories from our archives so we can reflect on and engage with the histories we listen to and tell one another. How do we carry each other's stories? What shapes our personal and family histories? How did we get to the neighborhoods where we live? And where are we in relation to each other's histories? As part of New York City, Queens has long been a point of entry to the United States. Thinking about the borough in this way, we searched through our archives to gather stories of migration for this first season of the Queen's Memory Podcast. These stories cross continents and move through decades of the past century. We share these oral histories to reflect on the histories of this borough, of this country, and of ourselves. mother and the father, you know, stayed with us like one year. My older sister was very involved in the civil rights movement of the Irish. I became involved also. There was a program that children came out from the north. My whole family sponsored children at that time. I came to New York in July for a week visit my brother. My parents came, but they didn't like it here. They had to come back, otherwise they will lose their green card. In this eighth episode, we're thinking about visits, receiving family, friends, and others as guests. In terms of legal procedures, visiting the U.S. requires paperwork, fees, and interviews to apply for visitor visas. Depending on national laws and an applicant's travel documentation and history, we learned in our research for this episode that the structure and length of these processes vary greatly. We also learned about laws that regulate visits to the U.S. These date back centuries to the Naturalization Law of 1802 that first established the requirement for all entry into the U.S. to be recorded by the federal government. In 2004, the U.S. government instituted the Visa Waiver Program, which deems citizens of certain countries eligible to travel to the U.S. without a visa. As of 2019, laws around entry into the United States undergo ongoing shifts. In this episode, we'll hear stories about hosting visitors after migrating to Queens and of relationships formed and changed through these travels. While we listen, we can think about how we stay connected with each other as we move from place to place. Let's listen. My oldest brother is a medical doctor in New York, so he invited us and we applied after we applied the petition 
we were waiting for five years. So 1984, in August, I came to New York all by myself, left my two children, two girls. Older one is five, and younger one was four years. And uh, my parents-in-law took care of them. So, and uh, my husband came to New York almost two months later because I didn't like to bother my sister-in-law and brother's family. So I came all by myself before, you know, I found out our own apartment home, yeah. Can you describe to me one of your first houses in Jackson Heights? Oh, you know, the three-family house. Mm -hmm. So we rented, you know, the first, you know, one-bedroom apartment. Yeah. The girls slept, their daughters yeah, slept yeah. in one room. Yeah. First, one bedroom, and then, you know, a few years later, we moved to, you know, the two-bedroom mm -hmm. next door. Yeah. So we are Jacksonites, you know, people. So when, you know, my parents, you know, visited us to see how we, you know, handle it. That time, I didn't know about the Queen's Library. Mm -hmm. Every day I woke up, I had to just hurry up to go to, you know, work. I mean, you know, before I hired in the, by the library, mm -hmm. when I worked in the boutique store. So every morning I pass by, you know, the Jacksonite's library, mm -hmm. but I never pay attention to that, you know, sign. So that time, you know, my mother and the father, you know, stay with us mm -hmm. like one year. One year. One year. That's a very long time. Yeah. That time we didn't have, a, we didn't bring, you know, a lot of books from Korea and we didn't, we couldn't afford to buy, read or buy. So we rarely, you know, read the books. So my father, all day long, he liked to read books, but we didn't have books. And all day he just, you know, read, you know, the Korean newspaper. Mm -hmm. Again, overlooking <laughs> all day. If, you know, I knew, I knew about, the, you know, the King's Library. I could go to library and borrow, you know, Korean books. He must be very happy. Every day, he just read again, 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 again. You know. So, you know, since then, you know, so I, I felt so bad for my father. If I knew, you know, earlier, you know, or you know, he left, then we found, you know, oh. the library. So I feel so, you know, sorry for him. Did he, yeah. did, did they ever come back? We just heard Chun Hee Kim reflect on memories of family visits and migrations in the U.S. and South Korea. Next, we'll hear from Mary Toomey, followed by Christopher Bowles, who both tell stories of hosting visitors in Queens. Both refer to political conditions in Ireland in the 1960s and 70s, the time period of these stories. Picking up from the history of Ireland in the 50s and 60s we touched on in episode 3, 
We'll start from an era in Northern Ireland mentioned in these oral histories, the Troubles. The Troubles in Northern Ireland here refer to a distinct, though connected political moment from the Troubles of Ireland decades prior. In the North, political uprisings in large part for a unified socialist Irish Republic were met with pro-British loyalism, enforced through sweeping state-imposed arrests and violent flashpoints such as Bloody Sunday in 1972. Various groups, activists, and organizers became prominent in these struggles, especially during the rise of the Northern Irish Civil Rights Movement. Mary Toomey names Bernadette Devlin Mikalski, who was active in the movement and held positions in the Unity and Irish Republican Socialist political parties at the time. The movement in Northern Ireland engaged strategies used in U.S. civil rights activism as well as Black American political organizing of the 1960s and 70s. In particular, Bernadette Devlin forged relationships with the Black Panther chapter in New York City. As Mary Toomey discusses, Irish-American support of the Northern Irish Civil Rights Movement was organized in part through organizations such as Northern Aid, or NORAID. Though less so than in decades prior, NORAID remains active. Two decades after the implementation of a legal ceasefire through the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, the aftermath of the Troubles remains contentious. Let's listen. The night, okay, so I was going in the hospital, I had all my children cesarean, so I knew when I would be going in, so I was going in the next morning. My husband and I, we, we'd go, we didn't go out to dinner a lot, but we went out to dinner, you know. And I think it was on the way home that, that night we heard about Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so um, my sister, my oldest sister, was very involved in the civil rights, the civil rights movement of the Irish you know, group, like she got very involved. So um, once my little fellow was, you know, eight or nine months and strong and healthy, I became involved in the, you know, in that in that movement also. And there was two mo- big movements at that. Well, civil rights wasn't so big, uh, but the Northern Aid, with Northern Aid was just big and they were more the supporters of the IRA and I don't know if I should say this but they thought we were communists (laughs) because we were like for the non-violent we were like behind Bernadette Devlin at the time so um, and there was a lot of you know songs from the north at that time and um, and I got very involved in fundraising and that kind of thing. And of course, my children helped, you know, with mailings and if we did any kind of protests and stuff, I took my children to it. And um, and I used to teach them the songs. <laughs> I still remember the words, but I would never, never sing it. Um, but my kids tease me a little about that once in a while now. Then, let me think, I was going to tell you something else about that time. Oh, then um, there was a program that children came out from the north. So we, um, my whole family sponsored children at that time. Wonderful. Yes, we took... And, and our friends, you know. 
I had a couple of friends and they took two, we took two. And the two that my friends had, they were not Irish, my friends. They wouldn't stay with them, so we had four. Oh my gosh, how long did they stay with you for? Um, maybe about a month. And um, eventually, in a, that happened a couple of years, and then eventually their parents came too. Yeah, so it was nice for us to meet. So we were very involved at that time with the people of the North. Were you the first of your family to come? To America? Yeah. No, my brother was here already in this country. My brother was here from 1949 in, Where a, in was New he York. Living? In New York, okay. New York, yeah. What was your first impression of New York? Not good. I came, I came to New York the first year I was in Canada. I came to New York in July for a week visit. I visited my brother and it was hot. And the noise of the train, I said, how could anybody live in this country? <laughs> and I was mad to get back to Canada. I was so happy going back to Toronto after my week. How did your brother wind up in Ridgewood at that time? He uh, knew a man called O'Gara who had a bar in Rockaway, probably in your time. <laughs> and um, he used to work for him on the weekends. And this O'Gara guy had a second bar in Ridgewood and he wanted to get rid of it and he sold it to my brother. Did any of your other brothers come over? Yes, a third brother came that very same year, that was 1956. He lived in Belfast and he had five children, I believe, at the time. And, uh, you know, he began to worry about, about the troubles and everything like that. <clears throat> so he decided to come here. So, uh, he came and he stayed with me for a while and uh, he came in December of that year and uh, following April he got his wife and children over. So, did they come and stay or did they, they ever did. go back? They never went back. They never went back. His wife, uh, actually he died a few years ago and his wife is still living. but. Uh, in our later years, she says, well, I never wanted to come to America for mm -hmm. uh, my brother. He wanted to come and uh, he was only supposed to come to see what was like when he came first. But then he stayed and uh, <coughs> same for them. After hearing Christopher Bowles share memories of brothers hosting each other after migrating to New York, we'll listen to clips from an oral history with Shabeta Gupta, who shares memories of parents coming to visit. To give context, Shabeta Gupta mentions her parents traveling between India and the U.S. every year to retain their green cards, which grant what U.S. law refers to as permanent resident status. This status must be maintained with certain limitations, including a one-year limit to stays outside of the U.S., Let's listen closer. 
My parents came in 2008 too, but they didn't like it here. They don't. They said we don't want to live here. They had a green card, so but they went back. At that time, my son was only a few months old. So after we came to this house, and then they came again. So when they came again, like in 2009 or 10, because you know you have, they have to come every year. So I don't know that time also they came and I start working at the same time in 2009 or 2010 maybe I don't remember one of my like you know one of my relatives they recommend me and they got the interview and everything and they selected me so it was just like next door to my house you can say it was going well like two months I worked there but suddenly my dad he's he was like depressed so he say I want to live here no I have to go back. And suddenly he booked tickets on his own, <laughs> calling India and do everything. And you know, the next day I have to tell my job that I have to quit because my parents are not with me and I can't leave my kids to babysitting. What was it about living in the U.S. <clears throat> that they didn't like? Because social life, I think everybody miss, especially the older people. They need somebody to talk, you know. Because I'm not even home when I'm working. Whom they talk to? And when I, by the time I come back, kids are home too. And you know, we can't talk. Like, what can we talk? The We we miss our neighbors like in back home we we sit in outside in the streets and we talk to each other we we get to you know go to places other people house or weddings or whatever it is right here we miss everything because we don't have anybody who, who can go to their house we can we just have to call first before we go right <laughs> and we don't even know they will call us or not especially on the weekends only so what about the other five days <laughs> yeah especially for older people they miss those things. And people like my parents, they never watch TV before. What can you watch, right? Movies or serials? My dad never watched TV. Oh my God, he has to watch TV here. That's it. Like you can say punishment. <laughs> so that's why he was feeling depressed, and he was trying to find a job too. You know, in that same way they can be occupied and they can earn money. But you know, since he is not that young, so people want young people to have, and he can't even speak English. That's a big problem too. So he was trying to look for a job. He had bad experience, maybe like. And you know he feeling he started feeling depressed. He like he get depressed so much that he say you know I will die here if I if I stay here I will die. <laughs> so he said I don't want to die here. <laughs> so he went back you know after. So but they had to come back in 2012. Otherwise they will lose their green card. And in between I was trying to uh, again work in a bank too. So in the time I get the job and the same time my parents had to come. So that was hard for them, but now because you know in the summer they they go outside, they go to the park, and every day they have to go to the park to talk to people, you know. <laughs> and my kids like it too because they have to go to park too. They don't mind. You can take them for two hours, three hours, because I don't talk, take them that much. The kids, because I have other things to do too. So, but now they like it because you know in the summer they go to park. Even in the winter, like uh, now they have like they drop my son to school and they pick him up. Like these things, they they get occupied. And my father also he found some friends, the Asian friends, with whom he can talk in their own language. So that's now is good. Now it's comfortable there. They don't feel like that. They are burden on me. <laughs> Maybe yeah, that's their thinking. Thank you for listening with us on the Queen's Memory podcast. Visit our show notes blog at queensmemory.org. There, you'll find full transcripts and written translations of this episode, and more to listen to from our archives. We've also added reading recommendations from Queen's Public Library's collections, as well as resources from local community organizations. And if you want your stories to join those you heard today and become part of our archives, head to queensmemory.org/participate or to our show notes to find out more. I'd like to thank our producer Adrian Lara. 
and our composer Elias Raven. A warm thank you to Rogarito for providing fundamental collaboration and support, and to Richard Lee and Molly Schwartz for offering their guidance and wisdom. Thanks also to the Queen's Public Library and the Institute of Museum and Library Services for hosting and funding this podcast. Finally, thank you to all the interviewees, interviewers, interns, and volunteers for collecting and sharing the stories that make this podcast possible. If you're listening with others and want to reflect together, here are some guiding questions. Who has stayed with you as a guest and who has hosted you? What kinds of relationships do you have with them? Join us for the next episode on returns and think with us about places to which we've gone and come back. Listen with us next time on the Queen's Memory Podcast.